The underlying statistic behind Jenny McKenzie's latest documentary is this. A third of all fourth graders in this country can't read at a basic level. Now, part of the reason is that the students have been caught up in this ongoing debate about how we learn to read. One of these theories or approaches took hold decades ago. And school districts spent millions and millions of dollars on it. They instructed educators on how to teach it to their kids. The problem is, it doesn't really work. Not for most students. Mackenzie's film isn't about that debate so much as the aftermath. Because this flawed idea about how to teach kids to read is disproportionately affecting children of color. Today in Radio West, we're talking about the film. It's called The Right to Read. Join us after this. Take the story wherever you go with KUER's mobile app. Our live streams are your on-the-go connection to KUER News and KUER podcasts like Radio West and State Street. Check in on what's happening around the globe with the BBC World Service or relax and wind down with classical KUER. Download KUER's mobile app today. It's available for free wherever you get your apps. In the 1980s, there was this public debate playing out about the best way to teach kids how to read. The reporter, Emily Hanford, says... It got pretty intense. In fact, it came to be known as the reading wars. On one side, you had an approach that's often called phonics, where you show students the parts of words and you connect them to the speech sounds they make. On the other side is this theory called whole language. Hanford describes it as a movement of people who saw phonics as old-fashioned and rigid. The idea behind whole language, she says, was that reading is a natural process, that kids construct their own knowledge from context and experience. And Hanford can actually trace the beginnings of the movement. So let me take you back to 1967. There was a meeting of the American Educational Research Association in New York City. And Ken Goodman is a relatively young professor at that point, and he proposes an idea about reading and how it works. What he proposes is that reading, skilled reading, is not a process, a detailed process of identifying the exact words, that instead, Reading is a process of understanding what you're reading as you go, using the context and other clues to tell you what the words are. And this became a very influential theory that undergirded a way of teaching reading that became known as whole language. And in the whole language approach, theory, idea about how reading works and how to teach it to kids, it was not important to teach kids how to sound out words, how letters and combinations of letters work. That's what Ken Goodman laid out in 1967 at this influential conference in an influential paper that went on to become sort of an organizing theory justification for the whole language approach. But Ken Goodman wasn't right. And it turns out that for those of us who are skilled readers, when you become a really good reader, you have actually figured out a way to get tens of thousands of words into your memory. You didn't really memorize them, but you actually know tens of thousands of words instantly on sight. And so the question became, how? How did they do that? Hanford says as the reading wars were raging, cognitive scientists were working. 
figuring out the brain's processing system for words. And she says what they learned is that the human brain isn't actually wired to read, that most kids need to be explicitly taught how to connect sounds with letters. By the way, that's phonics. So it turns out that really rapid, efficient word reading is almost like a reflex. It happens at an almost unconscious level. And you need to get to this point where reading the words is unconscious because that, it turns out, is what frees up your brain and your brain space to focus on the meaning of what we're reading, which is the goal. What you want to teach a child who is just learning how to read, that the first thing they want to do when coming to a word they don't know is look carefully at that word and try to sound it out, come up with a pronunciation, think, is that a word I know? Is that a word I've heard before? Maybe, maybe not. You connect that word with its meaning. And those three things, the pronunciation of a word, its spelling and its meaning, when those three things get linked in your mind, that's actually the way that you store the word in your brain. People really want kids to enjoy the process of learning how to read. But because very little was known about reading and how it works, teachers really haven't been taught very much about how to teach reading. And often they go into their jobs without knowing what to do. And then I think another thing that happened is that people who have become very influential in education believed in some of these ideas back in the 80s and 90s, and it has sort of perpetuated itself. Built into curriculum, built into materials, built into things that people have invested in, not only invested their time and their sort of ideas about how things work, but actual money. And so bad ideas became institutionalized. That's Emily Hanford. She's a senior producer and reporter for APM Reports from American Public Media. She has a podcast about all of this. It's called Sold a Story. We'll put a link to it on our website. This is Radio West. I'm Doug Fabrizio. Jenny McKenzie's new documentary film picks up the story from there. In the wake of a public debate that has raised uncertainty and confusion and contributed to a literacy crisis in this country, the film is called The Right to Read. It's the latest in our documentary series. We're going to be screening it next week at the Rose Wagner Performing Arts Center. We'll give you more details here in a moment. Jenny McKenzie joined us this week along with one of the main characters in the film, the teacher and literacy activist Kareem Weaver. We began the conversation with Jenny. What brought me to the issue of early literacy is my own experience, and it has been pivotal for me in my own life because I was diagnosed with dyslexia at the age of 14. And you never really know sort of how serendipitous things will wind up working out. But I had a film that was at Sundance in 2018, and I was approached by a stakeholder who had supported several other films of mine. And he said, Jenny, I really want to make a film about early reading and why kids aren't learning to read. And so for me, I just, um, I jumped in right away. And to get development funding for a documentary is hard to do. And we sort of had this big issue the early literacy crisis in front of us. And then the decision is, how do you tell a story and bring people intimately into that issue in a way to understand what it means to not be able to read? How did dyslexia, you know, not being able to read well, how does that affect the way you see the world? Well, I think for me, I didn't unpack it really until my adult life because there was shame and there was stigma. But I think the way it really made me sort of see the world is I think I had to learn to compensate in very different and unique ways. You you have to be resourceful. 
even if you're from a family that has the ability to get you support and access to tutoring and those kind of services, you have to be resourceful because you are seeing things, you're comprehending things, you're doing your schoolwork so much more slowly. So you're kind of closeted. Kareem Weaver, let me extend that question to you. Um, when you. When a person cannot read or can't read at a certain level, what, what impact does that have on you know, just how they are, how they exist in the world? Well, I think the first thing is um, self-esteem. Huh. So a person who struggles with reading, whether they're diagnosed with dyslexia or not, has to ask themselves questions that others just don't have to. You know, I taught young people for a long time, and I can remember realizing that they were wrestling with the difference between having an issue versus being an issue. Mm. And many kids perceive themselves as being a problem. And once that takes root, once you start looking at yourself from a deficit standpoint, you can do all the social emotional programs and chants and affirmations you want to. But if you realize that you are an other as a young person, that takes a hold of you and it's really, really hard to shake. So the impact first social emotionally is there, but then in an ongoing way. I mean, mm. you're talking about access to society, yeah. economic opportunity, familial opportunities. You know, you're a young person. You can read. What are your social opportunities looking like? Um, how are you going to be able to support yourself and or family? Uh, what about access to higher education? Is school for you or is it not? It really does impact everything from how you navigate the healthcare system to how you navigate getting a driver's license to how you navigate starting or, or choosing not to start a business. It really does impact everything. And those of us who can read well, you know, it's kind of like humidity. When you're in it, you don't really notice it. But when you're outside of it and come back, like, oh, my goodness. Well, the, the folks who are proficient readers really don't notice how other folks are living, how their how their fellow citizens and residents are getting on because it's just not their reality. You mentioned Kareem Weaver having taught at, in in the film, having taught at every level. That there's this through line you found, and that's the the inability to read. And there's a racial equality component to the film that we're going to get to in a moment. But I wanted to ask you about some basics because the film lays out some of these really troubling statistics. Um, among them, the fact that a third of our fourth graders in this country can't read at a basic level. Now, explain what that means. Are we talking complete illiteracy, just young people behind? Is this, what do we mean by that? So, Doug, let me, let, me, let me just share this with you. So that test that uh, was mentioned in the film, the name, yeah. they have four different levels or bands, proficiency levels. And you have a basic level, which means that you're not proficient. You, you only have partial uh, mastery or fidelity with the things that you need to know mm. and be able to do. Right? And that is alarming. About two-thirds of the kids are that level or lower. But then a third of the kids are below basic. Mm. And interestingly enough, Nate doesn't actually define what below basic is. It's as if we just don't talk about it. They know it. Most 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 citizens know it. Like if you can't read even at a basic level, what is the definition for that? Yeah. For being on the outside looking in the society, it, it's almost too much for them to even put on paper. Nobody wants to say it, and so as a society, we collectively tend to avert our eyes from the realities of those at that level. But I would challenge you and and your your listeners and others to just think about that. How do you label someone who is just completely outside of societies and from an access standpoint? Mm. What is that? What is that called? You know, yeah. we talked earlier about dyslexia, which is one specific, you know, neurological processing difference. But there are other things as well. Well, you've got about half of our incarcerated folks who are dyslexic. Mm. You have about 42 percent of your self-made millionaires who are dyslexic. So we're not we're not saying that. People can't make good. They, they can't 
survive. What we're saying is that it becomes an all or nothing scenario. And so for many kids who don't have the social safety nets, whose family don't have the resources to provide them with tutoring or extra support or whatever it is, um, they're looking at the wrong end of justice nine times out of 10. And the definition of that, I'll leave that to your imagination. It's mm. not good. Yeah. And it's not good at all. The, the reporter, Emily Hanford, is, is in the film and she asks this question question at some point, you know, why aren't we screaming and yes, yelling about right. this? So so I, I guess the question is, why aren't we? Is it because, as you say, what, we can't imagine that we're de- that in the 21st century, we're dealing with a, an issue like that? Put it like this. So for about a third of kids, things are working fine for. Yeah. That means for about a third of adults, things are working just fine for. Right. They learn any number of ways how to read and how to be proficient readers and learners, and they're, they're off and running. Well, those of us who are in that situation are running the country. They're hmm. running our institutions, hmm. our teachers, our doctors, our lawyers, our, our decision makers. And so we see the data, but there's this disconnect. In fact, oftentimes we think in a crisis, listen, what's really needed the most loving thing I can do in this moment is to do for other people what was done for me. So the way I learned it, I'm going to do that for them because clearly they need some support. Hmm. Not realizing that's not what the majority of people need. Yeah. What the majority of people hmm. need is to have reading laid out to them systematically one step at a time. Don't skip anything. Make sure we got all the pieces together so that we can make this puzzle come together. And so that, and for that reason, it's very difficult for people to see it because they have their own learner's bias. We, we could talk about the racial element and the social economic element, but the biggest bias we have is the way we learned things. Mm-hmm. The people who learn it a certain way are the ones who are running the systems. And it's very, very difficult for them to put themselves in other people's shoes. If you're lucky enough to have a superintendent or a board president or a principal or a teacher who has dyslexia, they fundamentally see things differently. Or maybe they have a child who has Mm. dyslexia. And so they really understand at a root level, hey, something's going, I have to do something so that everybody has access. Wait, what do you mean? Explain what you mean by that. You mean because because somebody who's maybe had dyslexic or has had a child who has struggled, don't take, they don't take it for granted, the idea. That's right. Okay, yeah. That's right. They don't take it for granted. And they realize, first of all, that either themselves or their child is not just a ne'er-do-well. It's easy for us to label people who are unsuccessful as being ne'er-do-wells. Well, you know, here come the sociological labels. Maybe it's because of poverty. Maybe it's because of trauma. Maybe it's because they didn't have a two-parent home. Maybe it's because someone's drunk at home. There's all sorts of, maybe they're from the wrong side of the tracks. Maybe the color is not right. Or maybe the linguistic background is different than English. And so let's just give them more time. Or maybe there's a girl or maybe they're a boy. Whatever our biases are, all of our stuff kicks in to interpret why they're struggling. But if you have someone who either has had or has dyslexia or has a loved one who has, they know, wait a second, my child is very smart, probably too smart for their own good. Um, They just need certain things. And so they see things with clearer eyes because they've experienced them personally. I wish every school district, every state department of education, um, every school had someone who either has or has been touched by dyslexia because they would understand it in a more visceral way. It's not a theory. It's not a game. This is a reality. And frankly, got about 15% of the population who's wrestling with that neurological processing difference And so we have to figure it out. Hmm. If we're going to say all our kids, then we have to actually mean all our kids. That's Kareem Weaver along with Jenny McKenzie. We're going to be screening the film The Right to Read next Wednesday night at the Rose Wagner Performing Arts Center. We'll take a break. Come back in a moment. You're listening to Radio West. KUER is available via radio through a network of transmitters and translators across Utah. We are also available to you beyond the dial. 
stream us on your computer, put us in your pocket with the KUER mobile app, subscribe to our podcasts, and listen to us at home on your smart speaker. Use our station finder for your nearest signal and explore more ways to stay connected to NPR Utah at KUER.org slash listen. This is Radio West. I'm Doug Fabrizio. Today in the program, we're talking about Jenny McKenzie's documentary that explores the literacy crisis in the U.S. The film is about the way kids learn to read and how that doesn't line up with how most are actually being taught. It's also about how reading is the most important civil right. It's called The Right to Read. It's the latest documentary in our film series. We're going to be screening it next week, next Wednesday night. Janie McKenzie is with us on the program today, along with the teacher and reading activist Kareem Weaver. So here's the critical question, as Kareem puts it in the film. This is the root of the problem, that the way children are taught to read doesn't line up with what we know about how they actually learn to read. Kareem, as you mentioned before, there's a third that can figure this out. But but right. most most aren't being taught in the way, at least right now, that lines up with how they actually learn. So say a little bit, well, you mentioned this before, but how is it that kids actually do learn to read? Because this idea of having a system, a structure, repetition yeah. seems to talk about that if you would. You know, we learn to speak pretty naturally. Yeah. We listen to our parents, we listen to our community, watch TV, whatever it is, and we learn to speak. It's not the same with reading. Reading is a skill that you actually have to intentionally be taught. You've, you've got to build the highway system in your brain to go from one part to another. You've got you to have all the components in place. And if you have things that are missing, it's going to be tough. Hmm. But what we've been doing is we've been making assumptions. This goes back many, many years. There are some folks who have thought about different ways of approaching literacy instruction. And I was just reading one of the forefathers of, of the whole language movement. His name is Ken Goodman. And he wrote a piece and basically said that reading is a series of guesses. Hmm. And I thought about that. And he said, much the way listening is, a series of guesses where you anticipate what a person's going to say. You try that out in a marriage and see how that lasts. <laughs> um, I, I would just say that we have to, we, we have to look at evidence base. There's a lot of different ways you can do it. The question really is what works, yeah. right? If you were to tell me, Hey, I'm going to spin plates on my finger all day long. And as a result, guess what? A hundred percent of my kids are reading proficiently. I look, I would be, I'd be skeptical, but I'd be spinning plates because I want a hundred percent of the kids to read. Well, we could put philosophy and ideology beside. We can even put the research aside for a second. The evidence says if you want to get the greatest number of kids to read, you make sure you do it using what can work for the greatest number of kids. And that's the science of reading that that like in a nutshell, just don't skip steps, start from the beginning, make it explicit, systematic and direct, meaning we're not just doing inferential learning or experiential. Learning. We're actually mm -hmm. explicitly telling kids what to do. We're involved in things that, that are trendy or faddish or whatever it is. And we've just walked away from tried and true what has worked. Well, that gets us to something that's really in the background of the film, and that is this idea. This, the reading wars, as it's, as it's often described. Um, and the big question was there, as you said, do, do kids learn through these explicit rules and some sense of structure or do they learn to just sort of learn to read naturally? And this is where this idea – you've made references to this, Kareem, we Kareem Weaver here a moment ago – whole language – balanced literacy. These newer ideas start to emerge and it seems like take over. Now, now give us a sense – Jenny, you too – talk a little bit about how the reading wars plays out. Um, give us a sense of what happened because this is sort of the context for how we ended up where we are. So a couple of things. So you describe it as a reading war. Some people call it a pendulum swing or what have you. But there are these camps that have been going at it. Yeah. And 
Let me just start by saying this. So I do a lot of work in prisons. I, I work with the NAACP. And then also, um, like that's just been a passion project of mine for years, working with folks supporting those who are incarcerated. And as you may know, you know, about 50% of folks who are locked up or incarcerated, 75% are functionally illiterate. Um, you, you've got to, and most don't read higher than the third grade reading level. Okay. Now, in all the time I've been working there, when I ask somebody, hey, man, why are you in here? I never heard one person say, man, it was the phonics. <laughs> never. never. Never never heard somebody say, man, it was just boring. I just, you know, I couldn't stand reading those words like that. It just got so boring. I hated reading. And so, you know what? I stopped, quit school, and now I'm here. Never heard that one. But what I do know is that in mass, people who are locked up in cages all throughout our country are functionally illiterate, that they were never given the opportunity to crack the code. Now, with that context, let's step back and talk about the reading wars, as, as you mentioned. them. You know, we're Americans. We specialize in arguing about everything, <laughs> everything. Yeah, and, 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 and I'm serious. We, we, we can't keep the main thing, the main thing to save our life. I would just say that, um, yes, there are folks who think that, you know, you should focus on a love of learning and uh, you know, a whole language method or a balanced literacy method is more loving and caring and nurturing. I, I get that. I, I think I understand where it comes from, which is a desire to offer something that's edifying. Then there are other folks who are um, like, listen, let's just make sure they can read and then they will find the things that they love and 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 they will be able to enjoy those things. I get both sides. Mm -hmm. But I think what what we have to do is change our mindset. Like that's the, that's the framing we have for everything. Is it red or is it blue? Is it conservative or is it liberal? This isn't that. This is us as adults deciding to be adults and put our kids first. I care if my neighbor's child can read or not. I, I don't care what color that kid is. I don't care what political party their, their parents are, are from. I don't care what language they speak first at home. It matters to me. First of all, as a resident and as a citizen, it's good for the economy. It's good for the neighborhood. It's good for my child when they go to school with that kid. It's just good for everybody if my neighbor's kid can read. I think the question has to be, who is your neighbor? Do we do we see our neighbors as valuable? Are we disconnected from each other? So those reading wars happen when we get so disconnected from each other, where our own idea ideas and our own philosophies take precedent over the needs of our neighbor. Can I push just a second more before we move on? No, though? no, you can't. Because <laughs> here's the because I because I, I just want as a, as a point of clarification. Yeah, go ahead. The idea that whole language or balanced literacy and the advocates for it, you don't want them then portrayed as sinister, having sinister motives, only interested in profit, uh, even maybe racist or something like that. You, you, you don't think those programs are effective for everybody, you, but you don't want to, to – you don't want this to lay out in the terms of it being, a, you know, a war. Is that is that what you're saying? This is what I'm saying. OK. So two things can be true. First of all, you don't need racist actors to produce racist outcomes. <laughs> and right now, um, actually, what plays out along economic lines um, has on its surface <laughs> appears to be racial. So those who have the money to deal with this get private tutoring or you go to a specialized school or what have you, um, they do. No one's just going to let their kid fail if they're aware of what's going on and they have the resources. Yeah. So it, it plays out that way. Now, as far as the as how we treat people who may not agree or whatnot, so this is a big question. Yeah. So, so people of goodwill can disagree on the substance of things. We have to be able to discuss and debate. We have to be able to have robust, honest conversations. And that also includes being honest about the impact of what's going on. Hmm. Like you, you can't just continue to have kids circle the drain while people are cashing checks. That's, that, that dog won't hunt. 
You, mm. People have a, a right to their feelings, to protect their families and their communities and their country. Do I want to portray them as the, a, 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 a malevolent person with the intent? I can't know what's inside a person's heart. All I can tell you is the impact of what's going on. To me, Doug, I think if you look at the reading wars and if you think about whole language and balanced literacy, which is going to work for that 30 or 35 percent of the population that is going to naturally learn to read with any curricula, any technique. Emily said, I think even early in our first interview, she said, you know, there's a certain percentage of us that even if you put us in a closet, put us in a room with a bunch of books, we're going to figure out reading. And that's how their brains are wired. But to me, I think when we look at accountability and we think of the complacency that has really happened where we have prioritized really profit and politics over our children's outcomes comes to looking at what it means to have good research. And that's what we mean when we talk about evidence-based curricula. Good research has to be done with a company that is separate from that reading curriculum, right? You need to outsource that for someone to do a third-party in-depth outcome research evaluation. That has to be done in a robust, rigorous, and valid way with a group that come from many demographics, not one demographic. So I think, you know, as Kareem has so bravely called out publishing companies and a variety of curricula, it is to say, please test your curricula with all populations, because we want to make sure our babies have in place something that works for the majority of our students to change this these numbers and to turn the tides. Jenny, let me ask... Um... Did you think about reaching out to to some of the advocates for these whole language programs and get a sense of what they're saying about – Lucy Calkins, I was thinking about her, like, you know, this literacy expert that has 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 one of these programs, one of these products, um, I guess you could say, um, and what she may be saying about all of this. What Do you want to – give me a sense of that, what, what, what you might have wanted from that. I I don't think she would have added anything to the story, right? The story is about Kareem creating change in his own corner of the universe and really fighting this fight and leading the movement around explicit evidence-based reading instruction and really fighting for our greatest civil right. But I think what I saw in terms of Lucy Calkins' response and other people from various publishing companies is they weren't interested in engaging in conversation with Emily or any journalist. So um, I, w- I, I didn't feel as though they were necessary to be a part of this story. Kareem, let me ask you, um, when you say in the film, as you do, literacy is our greatest civil right. That's right. What do you mean? So, you know, civil rights movement in the 60s, there was a big fight in our society about equity of access. Yeah. You know, who's segregated and who's not, who's allowed to go certain places and do certain things. Right. Can you go sit at the lunch counter or not? Hmm. Now our kids have the right to go sit at the lunch counter, but they can't read the menu. They can't apply the victories that have been so hard fought and so hard won your health outcomes, your family stability, your access to spiritual materials. You know, it it stuns me that the, that, you know, churches and synagogues and mosques aren't up in arms about the literacy crisis. They can't read the books that you all profess are holy. Um, But from, from, from a national security standpoint, Kids can't pass the ABSAT test to get in the military. From an economic standpoint, from a family standpoint, from from almost any standpoint you look at, survival in this society, to be able to thrive, not alone survive, requires the ability 
to read. And not just read, but to be able to read at a level that allows you to understand things. That's what we mean by a proficient reader. And so, listen, I'm, we're, we're glad to have the right to vote, but if you can't read what's on the ballot, hmm. if you can't read the synopsis that's mailed to you so that you understand these ballot measures and initiatives, what, what good is it? It's surface level. Mm-hmm. At a certain point, if we want people to really be citizens, if we want them to really be part of this country, then we have to include them. You know, that's why um, the old Benjamin Franklin quote, when he came out after they signed the, uh, the Declaration of Independence, they were like, what kind of, uh, of country we're going to have? Mm-hmm. And he was like, a democracy, if you can keep it. And this is part of our keeping it. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. if, if you really want to protect our democracy, teach people to read so that they can participate fully. So they're not just functionaries of someone else's agenda. They can have their own agenda. They can have their own beliefs. They can have their own faith. They can have their own processes, their own family, their own goals and dreams. Mm-hmm. That's what this is about. So mm-hmm. in that sense, it's our greatest civil right in this time. Mm-hmm. Matter of fact, Maya Angelou said that the elimination of illiteracy is as important to our history as the elimination of slavery. And I take that to heart. That's what I agree with Mother Maya absolutely on that. That's Kareem Weaver. He's a literacy activist and the director, Jenny McKenzie. We're going to be screening the film The Right to Read next Wednesday night at the Rose Wagner Performing Arts Center. You can get details on our website, radiowest.org. We'll take another break. Come back in a moment. You're listening to Radio West. Weekends on KUER are filled with the same high-quality news and engaging conversations you hear every weekday. Keep up on the latest news with Weekend Edition and All Things Considered. Indulge your curiosity with Radiolab and Hidden Brain. Or dive into the rich storytelling of Snap Judgment and This American Life. The best in NPR news and entertainment awaits you this weekend on KUER. See what's in store at KUER.org schedule. This is Radio West. I'm Doug Fabrizio. Today in the program, we're talking about the literacy crisis in the U.S. For decades now, there's been this struggle, this debate about how it is that kids or grownups, for that matter, learn to read. Does it come naturally or do they learn through explicit rules and a defined structure? There was a public battle over this. It came to be known as the Reading Wars. Jenny McKenzie's film isn't about the war part, but about the aftermath. Jenny McKenzie is with us today, along with the teacher and literacy activist, Kareem Weaver. I want to bring you back to something you referred to earlier, and that is this moment in time when slavery ended. And this, I don't even know how you'd describe it, this deep sense of maybe fear, anxiety on the part of white people who had enslaved these people, and what... what the what the stakes were for these people before who had been powerless who were going to be able to now learn to to read the like the impact the import of literacy and how that played on these these you know racist ideas of the past can can you, you this is mentioned in the film you talk about historically our country is always included or excluded people and would you say something more about that if you would Sure. So uh, I, you go back um, another 35 years before emancipation, 1831, Northampton, Virginia, Nat Turner and um, insurrectionists went through the countryside and they killed people and they were doing what they thought was best. But it scared the heck out of this nation. And that's when anti-literacy laws popped up throughout the country. It was the country's effort to say, oh, no, no, no. What's the thing that we have to do to keep this from ever happening again, to keep this group in their place? So laws were passed throughout the country that forbid people. Matter of fact, I think you mentioned that in the movie, Jenny, that, that actually forbid people. Maybe you'd be fined or imprisoned or what well, have you. The Alabama slave code. Well, that's yeah. not just. Yes. Yes. And that's in the movie. Mm-hmm. But they're throughout the country. Oh, yeah. They were terrified. So beginning in 1831 country got serious about literacy like listen this is the fulcrum this is the point at which everything teeters we're not going to have people learn to read because it's going to create a problem Mm -hmm. and 
we have been purposeful ever since um, around literacy. That's not history that can simply be dismissed. And then our institutions cropped up around that. Segregation sprang from that. Um, and we just have to figure out a way, you know, to do things in spite of ourselves. You don't need perfect people to do things. You just need regular people to make up their minds. And we're just not going to, we're going to change. We're, we're not slaves to our parents' legacies, our forefathers' legacies. Whatever they intended to do, that was their generation. We can turn a page on this. Because right now, it's not just harming the descendants of enslaved persons. The way we're doing things is harming everyone. Mm -hmm. Now, I know you'll see in the movie where they have um, statistics that show a gap between whites and blacks or Latinos and Asians. But what I liken that is to being on the back of a bus and arguing about who has the better seat as the bus goes over the cliff. I'm, I'm sorry, but at 50, yes, I'm at 50% and you're at 18%. 50% is terrible. Yeah. We're going over the cliff together. Hmm. And, and we're so busy arguing and pointing fingers about who's ahead of the other one that we're not realizing the whole bus is going over. Beverly Hills, California has about 72% of their third graders reading proficiently. And I think it's up to 75%. So with all the money and all the access and all the so-called privilege, one out of four of their kids aren't reading in third grade. That's a crisis. Right? You go down to Shelby, Mississippi, you got 21% of black kids who are reading proficiently. Three out of four. So guess what? They got something in common. Both care about this thing. And it's going to take us actually getting along enough to unite for common cause. And that's something that we as adults, like, I'm, can we do that? That's the question. Hmm. Do we have it in us to fight together anymore? Do we? Or does it have to be on the same channel? As adults, can we actually get along enough to save our kids? Hmm. And that, that that's a real honest question, man. It's not, it's not a... Um, I mean, it's, it's not facetious. Can we? And I don't know, but I'm working hard um, to get along with and to work with other. It doesn't mean we have to agree on the other stuff. We can hate each other 23 hours out the day. But that one, we got to be able to I'm sick of, you know, you, at, some, at a certain point in time, enough is enough. Yeah. You know, if we're going to be countrymen, we, we have to be able to do big things together. And this mm. is one of those things that I'm hoping that we can prioritize. Jenny, I want to ask you about section in the film that I think people of a certain age will um, will remember fondly, and that is the era of The Electric Company on PBS um, and Sesame Street. Um, and, and there's a – you mentioned in the film how these programs managed to narrow these, these inequity gaps. Um, mm -hmm. Say a little bit about that that particular moment, and um, and what are we seeing now in you know public education on public airwaves? Mm -hmm. I mean, public television was really the first opportunity for educational technology to hit the greater public, and it was amazing. Sesame Street and Electric Company did so much. I think for teaching kids social skills, as well as early literacy skills and math skills and so much more. So we owe so much to public television, I think, and all that they have done to help probably several generations really learn some foundational early literacy skills. And I think now we have a variety of educational technology tools at our access as well, but they're only tools. And so we see parents who are in front of so much technology that they can choose from, and we need to help parents understand which tools have that foundation that can really launch their kids with explicit and systematic instruction. Huh. The reporter Emily Hanford says in the film that most teachers are, in fact, not taught the basics of the science of you know some of these evidence-based ideas in their teacher preparation programs. Um, why? And what are they learning? I, I, th that, say something about that. Um, that seems kind of shocking. 
So universities are concerned primarily, I mean, yes, they've got a mission statement, everybody does, but they're also concerned about their brand, yeah. their endowment, their reputation, and the employability of their graduates. Yeah. That's really what it is. That's the whole game, especially public schools. You know, private universities, they do what they want to do, I guess. But the ones that we're paying, our tax dollars are funding them in part. We have a right to hold them to account. There's a disconnect between what they do at the university level and what's needed to have happen in K-12. We're so desperate for teachers right now, it's tough to hold a hard line. Yeah. But at a certain point in time, we have to say, listen, we, we want people that know how to teach reading. We, that, that, that's what we want. But I can tell you, many universities think their job is to develop a framework or an outline or philosophy. And then when they get to the K-12, that's when they learn the nuts and bolts. I think most parents would not agree with that. If I have a first year teacher from my kid in first grade, I only get first grade one time. I'm expecting that teacher to be ready to go. Right. That, mm-hmm. That's what parents mm-hmm. are expecting. Mm-hmm. And I think we have a right to expect that when our tax dollars are supporting these institutions. So I, I think um, there's been long simmering feuds within many education departments. Sometimes your methods one teacher and methods two teacher don't get along or don't align with their methods. It's just a matter of the university deciding to live those wonderful mm-hmm. uh, mission statements that they have to actually <laughs> care enough to plug into the realities of the impact they're having on the education of the young people in their cities to make those mission statements come alive. So right now their audio doesn't match their video. They, <laughs> they, they talk a good game, but the impact of what they're doing, they're disconnected from it. We have kids in K, we have teachers serving kids in K-12 who spend tens of thousands of dollars on a graduate program and they're not ready to teach reading on day one. Jenny McKenzie, you, you have this graphic in the film that shows the states in the country that are now requiring teacher training for the science of reading instruction. I noticed Utah is not on that list. And I wonder, how do you, how do you explain that if you do? I know the film isn't about Utah, but where does Utah fit in all of this? Well, I think Utah fits with the 19 or 22. I can't remember how many states have not passed Uh, science of reading legislation. And I think even the states that have passed that legislation, one of the things that Kimyana Burke talks about is policy is only as good as the implementation and the accountability of that policy. So it's so fantastic that we are pushing the envelope now and creating legislation that matters and that is focused on the correct evidence-based way of teaching reading. However, it's so much more than just having policy in place. And she talks a lot about how do we close the implementation gap and what that level of accountability really requires, because this is about culture change. It's really about a big shift in the culture. And we have to have buy-in that isn't just from our lawmakers. And as Kareem said so well, this is a nonpartisan issue right? This is not blue or red. This is something that we should all care about because it's foundational for our children to participate in our democracy. And it requires this shift and this buy-in from parents, from teachers, from principals, from superintendents, from policymakers. But I think what we're seeing that's happening, which excites me, is this movement really started as an activism movement from moms, primarily, of dyslexic kids. And they did start screaming from the rooftops about this issue. And they were going to fight for their babies to learn to read. So when we see that kind of activism and the difference that you can make in your own small corner of the universe, that is where it starts. And then we hope policy will follow. And then we hope accountability and implementation will follow that. Kareem Weaver, let me ask you this finally. Um, Dr. Kimiono Burke says in the film that illiteracy is one of the most solvable of issues. So I want to refer to something you mentioned before. It's a question that you asked. I want to ask it to you finally. Can we get along enough. 
do you think? Because you were raising the questions, do we, can we? Well, we'll answer it. What do you think right now? Do we have the political will, the social will, the you know collective will to get along enough to figure that one out? The answer is yes. We can do it because we have to do it. The alternative is unbearable. There's some things you do not because you want to do it, but because you have to do it. It may not go down easy. It may be bitter to the taste, but we have to do this. We we have to be able. Listen, we have to love our kids more than we dislike each other. <laughs> and I'm I am hopeful enough to think that's still true. Now, I know we're busy and stressed and people are working two and three jobs and you know, this impacts marriages, this impacts communities, this impacts businesses, this impacts everybody. I'm hoping that it has enough universality to it that this is still an all of us issue. Can we get along? I'm not saying we can get along all the time, but for that one hour a day, when we go down to that board meeting, we got to lock arms. Now, after the board meeting, we can throw rocks at each other again. No problem. You can wear your red shirt or your blue shirt and have at it. But at the board meeting, we got the same sign, which is, you know, our kids have the right to read. That gives me hope. And it's already starting to happen. So I I work um, under the leadership of Cynthia Adams of the Oakland NAACP as the education chair and a vice president. And I can tell you that, you know, we working with everybody. We work with every, I'm working with the dyslexic folks. I'm working with folks in the second language uh, community. I'm working because it's everybody who has this issue. It's mm-hmm. one of the few things I know of that we pretty much all get along on. Now, around the edges, there, there are some differences. People have different ideas about what it takes and what's necessary. And, you know, should you also include this or should you include that? And a lot of it's wrapped up in the identity. And, like, that's fine. But the core principle of, we want things that has evidence of working for our kids. That's an all of us thing. And I think we can get there. Thank you both. Thank you, Doug. A pleasure. Kareem Weaver. He's a literacy activist and a teacher. Also, Jenny McKenzie joined us. She's a filmmaker. We're going to be screening her film, The Right to Read, next Wednesday night at the Rose Wagner Performing Arts Center. We'll put details to all of this on our website, radiowest.org. Radio West is a production of KUER. You can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, we'd love to hear from you. We're on Twitter at Radio West. The program is produced by Tim Slover and Benjamin Bombard. Our executive producer is Kerry Watson. I'm Doug Fabrizio. 